it's pretty rare that I watch a movie that has a unique take on any of the old classic movie monsters. Yeah, like, like yeah, like zombies or like like zombies or Frankenstein's or like or vampires. <laughs> this one, I hadn't seen quite the idea that they did here before. I thought like isolated, it, I yeah, isolated uh, vampire story. Yeah, well, and also just the way the vampires operated in it were like, oh, this is different. Like not yeah, yeah, they have like their own language and stuff. No, yeah, no, yeah. It's, well, uh, the language, yeah, that was the thing that really. Like it was like whoa, this is weird. Like this, that language is crazy. Uh, it's not like Underworld where they have like crypts and like raves and stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. There's like, no leather jerkins to be found. They're anywhere. just kind of you get the feeling they're walking around in caves and stuff, but they still have suits. Some of them still yeah, wear suits. Yeah, it wasn't totally clear to me like how much of that is like their previous existence or if they're right. like like because they definitely felt animal like often yes uh like not like not human in the sense of not always sentient or in control of themselves mm -hmm. uh but then of course the language and the way that the the leader of the gang operates in particular yeah. sort of is a counterpoint like I, do they have lawyers is my question right do they, <laughs> are there do they vampire have a society? how do they right. settle disputes Right. You know? Well, yeah. Or is it just that guy just rips your face off with his long fingernails? I think it's. I think that's. <laughs> that's I think that's what it is. And we solved it here. Yeah. Right, we got to the bottom theater. of it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, but Abe has done a wonderful job of uh, telling you what show you're listening to, assuming yes. that you haven't read it already. And that's Director Peace Theater. That's I'm true. one of I'm your uh, director hosts, Adam Ganser, and with me is my esteemed filmmaking colleague. Yeah, I'm Abe. Yeah, you are. You're you're in my bosom today, <laughs> dear listener. Abe's bosom. Uh, the legend my bosom has foretold of words. <laughs> a house built upon letters. Mm. Um, yeah, I wrote a thing, and I'm gonna read it to Adam. <laughs> yeah, you are. And you're gonna listen to it, or you can turn us off and well, do something else. I just want you to know it's snug and cozy in here. You know? It's going to be pretty cool. I yeah, think. yeah, it's pretty cozy. And the film we're talking about today, uh, this is the first time I'd seen it. It was. It's called Thirty Days of Night. It was made in two thousand seven. And uh, if, for those of you who are Harnett ophiles, uh, this this is this is going to be your jam. If you're a Josh Harnett stan, welcome back to the fold. We got something tasty for you today. Yeah, right? he's uh, yeah, he's the he's the pro tag. I liked uh, him in this. Ben Foster shows up. I liked him in this too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had a weird yeah. affect, but I but he definitely believed it. Like the choices yeah. was were weird, but he was definitely fully in fully invested in it. And I was like, okay, good. You know, he was like a he he. You know what he felt like? He felt like an old Southern mage <laughs> of some kind. You know, like right. here like, I am like casting a spell on yeah, you. Yeah, I've got a. <laughs> I got an incantation for just such an occasion. He yeah, and definitely he, felt like yeah, that. His character wanted to become a vampire, and then he doesn't get his wish. Kind of right. like Guillermo in What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> but his is more sad. He yeah. literally gets decapitated by his, I don't know, sire? The person he was hoping would yeah, sire him? He, he wants yeah. To, yeah, he wants to be a vampire, and he's kind of a thrall of sorts, right? Like He's a thrall. Yeah, he's definitely a thrall. Yeah. And, he's, um, and he basically gets him into the town. He's like tells him about the town, and he's like, 
Get in here. There's some good eating in here. Basic thrall shit. I'm curious how this is not a real logical problem, but it like one the the there were a couple of like previous circumstance questions I had about this movie, which I don't always have, but this one I did. And one of them is like, so that guy's not from this town, right? No. So he just like a, did some googling. I think he came from that boat where is also where the the um at the beginning of the movie he's looking at a like a like what seems to be like an oil rig or, right. or like something right. like a, an icebreaker definitely and i think it's it's stopped in the middle of the ice because i think the vampires took over the boat and right. i think they've been going on boats for a while like they've just been a seafaring uh they've been yeah species yeah, been for a while pirates it, yeah. it definitely so like yeah this is where like i think this is actually the murkiest plot point of the movie it the movie suggests and i think it makes sense that this guy kind of scouted this place out and brought the vampires to this area because in mm. this part of Alaska where the story takes place, uh, there is no sun for 30 days. It's about to undergo a yearly phenomenon, right. which is true in right. some parts. Like, I think the Shetland Islands. Yeah, if you get north, north enough, right? There's like places that people live that are north enough. Where it becomes dark for literally a whole month, and I think that's true in like northern parts of Alaska. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm just regurgitating things that it's I've a, heard. It's a premise that's like that's a clever idea. Of course, that is a place vampires would want to live. But it's weird because the tone the t- the town closes down completely. Mm-hmm. No one like there's mm-hmm. this unwritten law that says no one leaves, no one comes to town. There's no planes running, and I'm like. Why is that? Yeah, why is why that? Why is it cut off from the yeah. world so much? Like, I understand yeah. why they do it from a story standpoint, but, like, logically, just because the lights are off doesn't mean that planes can't go. You know, like, that's not how planes work. <laughs> you know that when there's night, planes go to sleep. <laughs> I think, but that? I, but I, I mean, like, to play my own devil's advocate here, yeah. I think the fun, the idea is that no one wants to live there. Right. Right, and so a bunch of the infrastructure leaves. Yeah, it's like it's uh, like the city of Vernon outside of L.A. You, you know that city. <laughs> no one wants to live there. Exactly, Vernon is like a it's, great spot because like, it's like a, a town of industry. Right. You know? There's like t- there's like forty thousand people there during the day, like doing various industrial jobs, and like a hundred people live there. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, exactly. Nobody um, lives there. Uh, so they're like the stewards of this town. Uh, yeah, and includes the sheriff, you know, Josh Hartnett. Yeah, uh, he's the young sheriff. It seems like, and also the only real infrastructure in the town, right? Kind of. But right today, I actually don't want to talk about the plot. No, no, I don't of course. Care. Yeah, yeah. It's not important. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm not really going to talk about particular scenes that much. Okay. But what I do want to talk about is that we kind of set the stage, uh, and thank you for doing that, like, we kind of set the stage of exactly what makes this horror story click. And it's the idea of isolation. And then once the vampires attack and kind of take over the town, there's this essence of um, claustrophobia as well. Because they're stuck inside rooms, they can't make noise, uh, they're trying to evade capture, essentially, and death. And... um, that means that the director needs to be smart with his camera uh, in order to get you to think about those things yeah. and make you feel those things in a way that is not scripted. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bizarrely difficult task in some ways because 
like almost every horror movie ends up being this. I like to use Blake Snyder's genres because they're actually really helpful for people who are not filmmakers. Uh, the genre that's called monster in the house and the right. mechanics of that monster of that genre are that there's a creature or a series of creatures or whatever that are, you know, circling and investigating this little area and our protagonist can't get out. They can't get out of the house. Yeah. Alien. Right. You know, it's right. Right. A, Aliens. It's a lot of films. Yeah. Jurassic Park is actually one of those. So yep. like uh, in this case, the issue becomes how do you make claustrophobia happen? In uh, a an entire town, like they have an entire right. town's worth of space to work with, and they still want yeah. you to feel trapped there. So right. you know how do and I do chose it? a movie that isn't particularly memorable. I'm not trying to dunk on it. It's like run of the mill vampire movie, more or less. More I mean, or less. it's got a good hook. Uh, it's based off a graphic novel. There's reasons why it was made, but I would say. A lot of the reasons why you get in the seats for a vampire movie uh, like this, like, you know, it's anticipated audience um, is part of the action, you know, part of the gore. And I feel like some of that suffers from that mid to late 2000s shaky camera approach to action sequences. Yeah. Um, there's also, you know, but the reason that I chose it is that there's a lot of good work by their director, David Slade. And the production designers as well, just in how the sets are designed themselves. And I would include costume in that conversation to invoke a kind of like oppressive frame. Yeah. You feel trapped in almost every scene. And there's a method, I think, to the madness. Um, and this is like a part of my ongoing attempt to convince you through this podcast that even when we consider mediocre work, which I wouldn't call this that, but I'm just saying like in mass, when you look at movies, there's actually fantastic work done by craftspeople in the industry, no matter the film. No job is too small, and I think these people prove that. Um, I, so yeah, I 100 percent concur with this. By the way, I, I'll, <laughs> I mean, but well, that's the premise of the podcast, obviously. But like, right. I, I will say, I thought the the camera work by the director stood out immediately in this film. Mm -hmm. Like, I really think this guy. I'm like, this guy is really good. And then I looked up his film. Uh, his filmography and I recognized several interesting titles. They so were like, Oh yeah. shit. Okay. This guy's done some stuff. Yeah. 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 Hard candy was the hard candy put him on, and, uh, on my map. He went and that's on, a similar situation where it's like, it all kind of takes place more or less in one room. Yeah. He went on to make Bandersnatch. Uh, right. That was the uh, Netflix choose your own adventure film. Yes. So like he's, you know, people believe in him and I, and I, I can see why I can see why they do. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's all I wanted to add to that. Carry on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the mostly you feel hopeless throughout the film and ultimately some people survive spoilers for 30 seconds. Josh Hartnett and uh, company survive the onslaught, but he dies mm -hmm. in order to save uh, in order to save the town. So they're the concept here at play that, I think in order to make stick the landing is more or less that you need to feel this doom and gloom throughout. It needs to permeate despair needs to permeate every instance. And there's a way in which I think he did that. So you're a director, right? The premise basically begs for you to focus on two things based, you know, like on the idea of an Alaskan town that's at night for a month, isolation and claustrophobia come up in my head. No one is, 
coming for you and the threat has now boxed you in. Um, so let's look at how the director frames things to make you feel that. And I'm going to start with camera lenses. Mm -hmm. So telephoto lenses, especially in dialogue. Here scenes. we go, baby. We Here love we this shit on this podcast. We love it. Uh, so dialogue scenes are always tough because you are exam. It's yeah, yap 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 yap, and cut 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 <laughs> in between the two of them. That's what a dialogue scene is All for the, the most talking part. Talking meat. <laughs> I mean, I, like, there's not a lot of compound shots in this. There's not a lot of compound yeah. action in this. It's yeah, not yeah. like a Spielberg film where it's like, let's go pan over to the watch and whoa, that means something. And oh, there's a bomb in the truck you know like, yeah no this is just like here i i'm talking at you oh i heard you and now i'm speaking back at you there's also right, that's, that's there's not a lot of like complicate like complications or reveals nah. in this plot either nah nah it's uh, pretty it's much pretty straightforward once it, you kind of know what's going on yeah you kind of just want to sit it in takes it. like 40 minutes to like settle into what it is really like it takes about 40 minutes <laughs> to like do the first act and then do the part of the movie that's the second act where they finally get these are our band of survivors who are hunkered down now for the third year. Like that takes 40 yeah. to 50 minutes to get to that point. Um, right. But after that, it's basically a pretty static, like how are we going to get out of this sort of type of movie? Exactly. Yeah. So you're shooting a movie. Wide lens or long lens? Yeah. Here's what each do to the background. A longer lens, a telephoto lens, compresses the background. We've talked about this on this podcast. It's just true. Uh, that means as you get longer on the lens, meaning like, 50 millimeters, 70 millimeters, 80, 100, 150, 200, you know, when you get higher up on the number, uh, the face occupies, if you were to take the uh, a frame and imagine a face in the center of the frame, it occupies the same visual real estate than a wider lens. If you were to frame it that way, the background, you notice that the background on the telephoto lens uh, would truncate the background. Basically, it would, it would, it would make it so that the, the patch there would be less wall shown. You're seeing less of it, yeah. Yeah, it's just the narrow sections directly behind the head of the subject. A wide, wide lens does the opposite. The background expands and you see more of the walls, landscape, or whatever. Pretty easy stuff. Additionally, longer lenses create a more nar narrow depth of field, whereas wider lenses allow for more things to be in focus. This isn't always true due to the nature of optics, but if you aren't really focused super close to the lens, uh, it becomes more true. Um, and that what that is is basically I'm just saying a telephoto lens blurs backgrounds more often. So in this movie, we see most dialogue scenes on long lenses and David Slade chooses them to blur the backgrounds and compress our field of view. People are literally literally locked in the frame and it confines them and he frames it uh, like in that way. He tries to short frame people and he tries to like cut off a little bit of their hairline a little bit uh, narrow on the neck it's a very kind of zoomed in movie because of that yeah uh, there's a lot of extreme close-ups uh mm -hmm. which are they're not always in vogue a lot of movies that do telephoto lenses though also love to live in those like western close-ups or those like or profiles yeah. that are extreme close-ups they're more epic right yeah yeah you really get intimate with the character like if they feel very intense because you're you know there's only like a few people in your life that you get that close to. You get like right. physically that close to, right? And it's like a lover or yeah. maybe a family member. Uh, but mm -hmm. even that, you can not see very their often. pores and such. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's just one way of doing it playing with the edges of frames and choosing the lens and uh, to like warp essentially what inhabits that frame. Let's talk about color contrast because this movie has a lot of it, especially in the wide shots. 
So I have this theory that this movie works in black and white. Like mm. you could take color out of this equation and it still plays. It's just the way they shot it. And if you have read the graphic novel, this is actually is how that graphic novel functions. It colors everything is very stark. Uh, there's not a lot of shading uh, in the way traditionally it's done, where it's like many, many uh, bands of lightness. It's basically all black, white, red. And there's a stylistic reason, I think, for that. It, it looks cool. Like Sin City came out in 2005, yep. you know, and stuff like that. But it has a sneaky reason in terms of making you feel like your subjects are oppressed in frame. Uh, because they can't get out. And uh, isolation and claustrophobia, which is what we're going for here, uh, is basically um, is basically you can do that with color. So the way mm. that you do that is uh, when you're shooting like full bodies, head to toe or wider, how do you make someone feel like they're locked in the shot? Uh, and how do you make it feel claustrophobic? Well, you surround your subjects with a single color that contrasts with them. So in this movie, most people are dressed darkly and their background is white snow or they're dressed or lit brightly and their background is black night. It's a very binary kind of system. And by doing this, it has the effect of encasing them with negative space. So they're still boxed in, but by their background, not just by the confines of the, le- the, confines of the lens. That's smart. Does that make sense? Yeah, they make a, they, they, the director is essentially making a wall of a monotone color that the, that the subject right. lives inside of, like a little prison. Right, you know? exactly. It's cool. And that's pretty simple stuff. Yeah. But uh, additionally, when it's necessary, as it is with like the initial sequences with the vampires... Uh, blending your antagonist into the background serves a great purpose. Notice how often in the uh, beginning of the film, when we get those quick shots of like what we learn will become the vampires, they're like caked with snow. Um, so not only does this kind of juxtapose with the strategy that you're using with your protagonists who are locked into the frames, choosing colors or hues or lightness that si- makes them similar um, to their background blends them into their environment so they become their environment and this makes the negative space of the earlier shots more terrifying because they if they you know come from the white well now you're surrounded by white or vice versa they can kind of come out of anywhere which kind of goes back to what you were saying about like monster in the house yep it is the environment the alien can come out of the ceiling the walls beneath you it's its domain. It's not your domain. And they really they use that to varying effects in this movie. Like one like one thing that happens all the time is the vampires come from any direction. But another thing that they're using it to do is disguise how many vampires there are in any given scene. True. You know, like, yeah. it's like are all they all here? Which ones are here? Like how many are here? And because of this this feature, there's always possibly more vampires to be seen. Somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's kind of talk more about a little bit more um, about how you use frame in terms of depth. Uh, I'm not necessarily talking about the lens itself this time. I'm literally talking about like stuff you put into frame. So this is probably more obvious. And it's especially like, I mean, I don't know about you, Adam, but mm-hmm. I don't know how many like film school projects you saw that used like tactics like this. Where because like prisons are easy to do, 
But oh, yeah. sometimes, like people just like, oh, they're like imprisoned by the frames because they like there's there's bars there. We were literally <laughs> shown. So like, there's a really famous piece of American Beauty, where uh-huh. where Lester uh, is like at his jobs. First time we've seen it at his job. He works at a call center basically, and uh-huh. he's we're watching him have this phone call where he's bullshitting some guy. And we're watching his reflection in a computer screen. That's right. And the yeah. computer screen is like formatted to be literal bars. Like it's the kind of thing like that computer screen makes no sense. But you don't right. think about it because you're watching him. And the bars are clearly there to say he is in prison. And they showed us that like at least two different classes because they're like, you see, suggestion in the frame, right? Um, right. So, yeah, they love that shit in film school. Absolutely. And it's for a purpose, you know, it's, um, we're kind of laughing at its overuse, but that doesn't mean that like, there's a reason shit is cliche, right? Why? Because once upon a time it really worked. Well, and it was, uh, it's, it's maybe obvious to us now. It wasn't so obvious back then. And I would say like, honestly, man. And I, I mean, this is the thing I dialogue with my students about all the time. Like, I don't think people left the theater remembering that they saw that. No. They don't care. Like, oh, and they it's, don't think they actually yeah. see it. Like, I think it, it scans on a more primal way, and they don't... Yeah. Like, so they're, it, as obvious as it looks to a filmmaker, a general audience doesn't see that stupid computer code. You know That's what I mean? True. Like, so, like, we can get away with a lot of shit, man. We get away with a yeah. lot of shit. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I was just, like, kind of... As, as people ingest more and more, like... People who live on the earth right now have ingested more media than like most people who are dead. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah. So I think at the the shared kind of lexicon and uh, film comprehension skills of our average, you know, moviegoer uh, is probably a little higher than, you know, it's ever been. But it, what you're saying makes is absolutely true. There's there's a primal kind of reaction to this stuff. And that's kind of what he's doing here is that especially when you're shooting with a telephoto lens where there's a lot of foreground and background that can be out of focus, placing obstructions like a chain link fence or pipes or signs or anything that's like bulky that kind of obstructs the view, the field of view um, is ways to separate quadrants of the frame. So basically you can encase or imprison your protagonists like, you know, American beauty by literally (laughs) placing stuff and that's what we notice about town and we also notice it inside their buildings as well not only do they barricade stuff and we kind of shoot from the hip in that way uh outside there's just cars and you know it's a town so there's a lot of stuff and they kind of do a fly on the wall kind of thing uh which was like very in vogue at the time 2007 where there's a lot of like handy like documentary fly on the wall kind of stuff going on it's they embraced that and made it so that you can you kind of feel like oh it, like w- the camera is a vampire right now or something like that like even though it's not you get that vibe yeah so it does that and on top of that in terms of literally the frame uh you are actually you know creating boxes and you can do stuff like imprison your protagonists you actually put your finger on something really interesting there that i don't think i've heard somebody actually say for Maybe ever, but certainly not for a while. Like, yeah, we were really obsessed with those like long lenses, compressed space things that suggested a point of view. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of media from the time said there was a point of view to it, like The Office or something, right? Or like Cloverfield, right? 
But uh, most movies that were creating the sense of point of view wanted the feeling of it uh, and relied on you being aware of that trope and sort of like feeling that trope. Mm-hmm. Like that was like a that was like part of the language of the time is like, you know, there's a documentarian here seeing this and uh, right. you don't believe there might actually be somebody there. But that's the that's what this is. And, you know, that language. Yeah, it's funny, actually. Um, it's almost weird to see stuff yeah. that is still persistent yeah. Uh, yeah. from that era. I literally, because it's van- we were talking about vampires in this podcast, right. I made a reference to uh, what what we do in the shadows, mm-hmm. which is a you know I think on FX or whatever right now the uh, TV show, which is based on a movie right. at uh, that that was made you know a decade ago at this point, and it's like okay, it's weird to see kind of like that Office esque you know like. They will nod to it because they do it in the movie. Yep. Sometimes the vampires eat the cameraman, yep. you know, and stuff like that, <laughs> which was a joke that was like already old hat in 2010. Right. You know? Right. So it's just weird to be like 10 years into the future where that's no longer really a trope, but they're still doing that joke because it's still a funny joke. Now you know? it's, it's almost just, a genre. Yeah. It's almost, you know, I mean, it's, it's, absolutely. it's almost a genre. Yeah. It, like here it was still kind of a, a contemporary style thing, but. Um, I don't mean to derail you too much. I, that was no, just no, an that's interesting a, observation. Yeah, we won't dig into it, but that's absolutely how genre, in my opinion, that's how genre forms. Yeah, how they it's happen. Just, yeah. They just, uh, you know, people point out things that look, oh, that looks like that. That looks like that enough times. Let's give it a name. <laughs> that and, <laughs> all, anyway. and, and also there's a particular, like, you know, corral of feelings that have been created successfully several times. And we remember them enough that, like, now we're looking for those feelings explicitly. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a like a strand type movie. Oh God, dude, get <laughs> make your next fucking point. Just make it. So God. sequences uh, that are shot in this movie with wide angle close ups. There's quite a few, and there's one I'll pick apart, which is or not really, but like a one I'll point out that if you do go back and watch this movie, look at this scene. Uh, there's a scene where Josh Hartnett and Ben Foster are Ben Foster's the stranger who arrives and he's immediately put in a police cell. They have a there's two times they have a kind of a discussion and the second time they have a discussion the stakes are higher because Josh Hartnett's friend has died. So or he doesn't know where he is but there's blood everywhere. So I was just talking about how the director as a convention was using uh telephoto lenses, right? Right. So the director here, actually, in the sequence, uses wide-angle lenses, but he uses it only for extreme close-ups. And this actually still does the job by combining both of the principles I've mentioned. So if you remember the thing I was talking about with color contrast, the walls of the police station are more or less white or like an Mm off-white. So when you do use a wide-angle lens uh, on a close-up, as I mentioned, the wide-angle lens expanding the background... What he's doing is he's also making his background uniform. So you minimize the background expansion of the wide angle lens. So basically Slade is nerfing that aspect of the lens. He's basically saying like, because there's no, you don't feel the wide angle in the background because it's all one color. 
you don't feel the size or scale of what's behind them because it's one color, it's one wall, it's an out of focus white wall. So it's literally just so it's literally just the size of the subject and how warped they are. Aren't That's they? really all he's getting from the wide angle lens, and he's minimizing the thing that he doesn't want out of the wide That's angle smart. lens, which is a uh, you know expansive background. Yeah. All, uh, and what that why what what does that earn him? I guess is another question that's up to you know you'd have to ask him. But my thought is that wide angle lenses do often warp and, and even fisheye. Maybe not in this movie, but it definitely distorts the contours of an actor's face. Uh, and this gives you kind of an otherworldly vibe. Like I think the director is using that, yeah, using that aspect of the lens to kind of create a sickly horror vibe. And uh, yeah, so. But remember, he's when he's using that wide angle lens, he's muting the aspects of the lens he doesn't want through production design and set deck. So it's, it's really clever because, like, that's a director who understands like all we've been doing since we were tiny little children is like scanning faces for to like learn emotions and learn what we know, like what a person thinks and feels. Like that's like if if you, if all of us are an expert in one thing, it's scanning the human face. Like that, that's like the first thing and the last thing we're all doing, right? So, like, using the lens this way is, in effect, giving us a misscan or, a, or like, a, a weird scan, you know what I mean? Like A kind of uncanny valley aspect of right, the face. Right, and yeah. he's using it in the way where we feel the other, like, we feel in an unconscious way, because none of us are doing this consciously. Like, that person's not right. Something's wrong with that person. Uh, yeah. They feel yeah. off somehow. Uh, and like, and then you, you, you blacken his teeth. Yeah. And then you yeah. 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 Make yeah. him talk like an old Southern mage and you bada bing. But he doesn't like, I mean, the teeth are really obvious, but like, otherwise right. he doesn't feel particularly manipulated, you know, like as in like he does like, not like a, not like the vampires do where it's like, look at those contacts and those teeth and stuff. Like yeah. he doesn't feel like the image is particularly manipulated. He feels like he's in the same world as everybody else. Right. But like that, the lens Width really could be a dramatically different choice if he wasn't mitigating the background. It's smart. I've never thought about doing that, but now I'm going yeah. to. Now you're going to do now it. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to steal that. <clears throat> Let's talk about, uh, just real quickly, because we kind of touched upon it a little earlier, but uh, I want to jump to, uh, not camera anymore, but I want to talk about editing for okay. a second. Sure. Which is just that this movie does something that a lot of horror movie monsters do. I... Um, where they abstracts the monsters mm -hmm. for act one and parts of act two mostly because it does this thing that a lot of horror movies do, which is not show you the full monster for as long as possible. So editing and usually reliance on in those sequences where you're editing quickly insert shots, meaning shots of hands, shots of footprints, shots of, you know, like, bisecting the monster into just like their legs and not showing the whole shot, uh, doing these inserts that represents the horror. And what you're doing there is you're not getting a clear geography of the monster, but just showing the world around the victims and showing the world around like how, what the monsters are doing. And you create a sense of anticipation and expectation that the monsters are part of the environment, kind of that monster in the house thing that we're talking about. Yep. So if they are masters of it, and we can't get a like a quick glimpse of them. What it's essentially doing is it's making another way in which the sequences and uh, which the protagonists are, you know, having these scenes where they're just like talking things out. They, they feel like there's a 
juxtaposition between the two of them. It's almost like the monsters operate in a different speed and a different time. Uh, another way in which they are like in in a way imprisoning the protagonists. They're once I mean, again in control of literally the editing. He also, I mean, he's definitely speed ramping, right? Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah, like some of those, like some of those grabs, like those off-camera grabs where the like the monsters grabbing people it's like, and like they're yeah. incredible. Like they're really well done. I right. thought. Yeah, and the sound design helps that too. Yeah, they, some of the best I've seen in a movie, quite honestly, and that because that's a trope you see a lot. Right. Yeah. Um, but this it's done really well here. Um, right. Yeah, I think it, the thing moves. Those sequences yeah. are probably yeah, the best in the film, yeah. just in terms of like what this film's like legacy is. Mm-hmm. Is that the 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 times in which the mon you were not you haven't really seen the monsters yet, and uh, the town is just getting picked off one by one. Yeah, um, there's that one weird scene where these two guys are with this woman. And they're like, all right, which one are you going home with? And she's like, why do I have to pick? And it's like, what is, what's happening up in Alaska, they're, bro? They're fucking threesomes, and, dude. Yeah, like, okay. And they're like deciding which house to go back to. So that's like yeah. just a funny introduction to these it's characters, just a, right? And they're like minors, too. Yeah, that's the best part. They're like, that's another day in the mind. So you guys want to fuck each other until we have to do this again? Yeah. 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 Let's pick a place. And they're all like hot. They're all like super hot miners because I guess, like, I don't yeah. know. I guess you yeah, could be hot. Yeah. Hot yeah, miners. Yeah. You're swinging miners that pickaxe can be hot. all day. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Yeah, Anybody can be hot, man. Anybody just, can be hot. It's all just how hot. you carry yourself, man. No, That's no. Right. But it's just, it's funny that, you know, in movies, it often, like any profession, is instantly everyone's just a 10. You know, like, That's just, right. just dial exactly. it up to maximum hot right now. It, it was very funny. Like, like that deserves its own its own podcast. Just like what's going on with those? <laughs> what's three? going on with these but Alaskan like, miners, man? A hundred percent. So, but like that's also one of my favorite examples of the how the vampires are deployed, mm-hmm. because the speed with which like one of them gets yanked out of there, yeah, it's, and like knifed in the neck and stuff. It's like whoa! It, it's like, like it, Velociraptors, it really man. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like the Velociraptors. Yeah, yeah. and good good comp. Yeah, and I mean yeah. Spielberg's that's... doing all this shit because of 30 days <laughs> of night. <you> know? <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little guy named Stevie Spielberg watched yeah. this film, but he, he learned was like, something I'm from it. I'm going to go back in time and make Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's talk about, uh, let's go back to camera, actually. Okay. Let's talk about angles. Huh? Sure. Let's get excited about I'm into angles. It. I'm ready. I'm ready Woo! for it. Yeah, so let's talk about low angles, specifically okay. indoors. So when you're outside, often you won't feel low angle unless you're grounded with things like trees or mountains or literally the ground. You don't get the feeling of a low angle just with a subject. Uh, I'm going to sh- kind of try okay. my best to tell you what I mean by that. Okay. I'm Obviously, ready. their feet appear larger than their head when you have like an extreme low angle. So imagine that in your head if you would. Right. But like they're at a vanishing point above their head. Right. But that's yeah. not <clears throat> that's not uh that's not enough. When you're a director, you want to make things drastic. You want to make these things have indicators uh in the frame that say the thing that you wish to be saying. So it may seem obvious, but something like a low ceiling really helps that effect when you film indoors. Because what you've done is you've if you're looking up at a lower ceiling, 
you've really emphasized the enca- like encasing the protagonist. And you've done it in the movie before with left and right, their walls and whatnot. Now you're doing the same thing with their headroom. You're basically doing the same thing, but now from above. There's mm-hmm. no way out. Literally now I've closed the left, the right, the, you know, uh, I've, I've encased them in depth, what, what's toward the lens, what's behind them in lens. And now he's literally doing it with up and down. So there's no way yeah. out. He's chosen to dominate all of the aspects of like where you can move a frame. And he's basically said to you, there is a limitation to the system. That is how he's encased you. And you didn't even know it because you weren't thinking about ceilings. Uh, right. And so let's look at the sequence when they're locked in the house in act two. So there's this point in the movie where they basically set up in an attic uh, and this, and the director has placed like an awkward angled ceiling that's lower than most rooms. And he uses this. He puts the low camera at a low angle and looks up and he kind of cants or dutches his angles, which just is another way of saying kind of tilts it to one side or another to emphasize uh, that space because that space was designed or chosen for a specific reason. It's the lines, the lines in the ceiling and the lines in the walls. It's these wooden walls that have deep cuts between the wood. And so he frames them with those lines. And so on top of what we use so far, using a telephoto lens and compressing the space, you've basically made a prison of lines all around your subject or basically shown there's a barrier between where they are and where everything else is. And I think there's a psychology to this, by the way. If you mm-hmm. go back to your middle school art class that we all took and you, you know, like drew your first vanishing point off to the horizon, if you remember, the art professor was like, the reason this works is diagonal lines. When you emphasize them in your frame, you emphasized a closed system. Your horizon now has a set distance. Those diagonal lines spark in our monkey brain the idea of either close or far. So mm-hmm. that's what I mean by indicators. In this case, expanse or confinement, claustrophobia, or you know, isolation can be the same thing. It's leading to a wall. It makes you focus on the wall. When you're in a confined space where we recognize that there's the pattern on a wall or a seam leading up to a ceiling, you, it shows you that the, confi- the, the confines of the room are more clear to you and emphasized in frame. So by showing that geography, you can make it so that we're like literally locked into a set size. And that's what, that's why he's doing lines here. Um, you can look at my video on Die Hard uh, on the Small Beans channel. Small I talk about things. this. Yeah. yeah. All the pictures, all pictures in the world that attempt to use space in a non-flat way use lines. Interesting shots use lines. Lines make things feel more flat or less flat. It's how you show space because it's how our brains identify distance. Yeah. The, yeah. The, one of the best directors at that particular aspect is Wes Anderson. He loves making, like using lines and vanishing points to create comedy. Yes. Like he does that shit For all real. the time. Yeah. Uh, all the time. And there's a reason why he pans cameras the way he does because they emphasize the left to right orientation of his movies. Yeah, absolutely. Or right to left, left to right. You know, you know. The most recent one, the French Dispatch, he got real zany about it. Uh, Uh And I, but in a way that I thought, like, for somebody who wants to like see this, like, Mm -hmm. see this concept like really clearly elucidated with a variety of uh, 
a variety of ideas about how it could be done, mm-hmm. that movie is one of the best for it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. he's he's a master of that very specific thing. It's it's yeah. actually like as he's gone through time, it's really he's gotten more developed on that. To yes. to to a point that if I was him, at a certain point I would like look at a horizontal line or a vertical <laughs> line and I'd be like, "Fucking fuck it." Yeah, that's uh, it. I've had uh, it. Scrap them all. Uh, I only want diagonals and squigglies. <laughs> loses <laughs> his mind for no reason one day on set and yeah. he's like, "I uh, give me a di- diagonal line. My kingdom yeah. for a diagonal line." I mean, yeah. Yeah, he does seem I mean, like and I, I mean, this is not a podcast about Wes Anderson, but like it it does feel like uh, a lot of directors have like a have a really clear idea that they're constantly chasing, you know, and he's one of those. Like Terrence Malick's one of these directors too, and you do kind of feel like, especially for him, when he's had such control, like set, like he's had so much control over his films, like artistically for such a long time, that he's been able to like perfectly achieve it. You wonder why he doesn't have a doesn't try a different aesthetic. It doesn't even try. It's aesthetic, baby. He owns it. That's why. Like, just yeah. it's branding. It's hashtag branding. I mean, it's that's al- what it is. It's also what you're good at, too. I mean, like maybe yeah, he could do a film. Like he, he has made films that have diagonal lines, so it's not like he can't. It's not like he uh, can't. But it yeah. wouldn't feel like a Wes Anderson movie, and I think he, I, he, he understands. He really that wants would, that. Yeah. And also, it would be weird if he didn't. Like, if he came out with a movie that just looked like a normal other movie, people would joke about that right they would be you like you say what? that you say that and yet like sam raimi uh who i think has a fairly distinguishable style not mm-hmm. to the degree that wes anderson does uh made a simple plan that's and true it was great you know that's true so like i mean i i don't want to get too off on a tangent but i i think you're right that it's strange that he feels so committed to like my style is always the same like i think that kind of thing happens more accidentally with filmmakers like kubrick Mm-hmm. Um, or even or Terrence Malick, you know, like like they accidentally, and I I use that word very gently, like are constantly sort of going back to style tropes because it's how their brain works, and that doesn't seem like what's happening with Wes Anderson, but no, I could be wrong. We'll talk about that someday because it's like over, yeah. Uh, and if you do want to hear an Ander, uh, <laughs> Wes oh, Anderson yeah, podcast, right. you guys talk about it all the time uh, right. on this channel, Anders Sons, where we talk talk about the films of Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. I mean, for no reason other than they share a last name. It's anyway, a great bucket, great bucket, great bucket. Let's yeah. uh, talk about distance because yep. I was just talking about lines, and let's talk about lighting and staging. So these are elements that the director can influence with just moving bodies in space and lighting them. Uh, so you talk to any director of photography. If they'll let you. If they'll if let they'll you. If they'll let you because they're... Because <laughs> they're gorgeous. They're rock stars. <laughs> and cool. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. You'll, if you talk to them long enough and ask them about, like, what are, like, things to do... Uh, if you <laughs> want to be a f- director of photography, you know, God, please do this. Please go up to I a mean, TV literally like, film school, right? To do? <laughs> hey, director of photography, what do I do to be you? Okay, they so just here we toss go. you their sunglasses first. They say, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just start, they say, like, do you know how to play guitar? Yeah. Uh, do you roll no. cigarettes? Start then rolling not, the cigarettes. <laughs> you're not a director of <laughs> photography. Uh, so you'll probably hear something along the lines of when you talk to them that uh, li- that the more distance between your subject and the background is always preferable. Let me say that again. Yeah. Putting more distance between your subject 
and their background, and I would argue putting and the subject in the camera, so everything on the terms of depth is always preferable. This is because you can separate the lights themselves and isolate the lighting between the subject and the background. Makes sense. Mm. Yeah. What it also what also makes sense that if you're trying to film a sequence where like claustrophobic shots matter, you'd use small spaces, right? Right. I mean, it's easier. So, though, well, it's not easier to do that. It makes it more claustrophobic for reasons that I that's, said before. That's what I mean. It's like easier to achieve that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. That's so, what, I mean. what I'm saying is these are two antithetical principles of right. filmmaking now. Right. Most movies get around this with a balance. They use camera lenses and angles that kind of manipulate the space so that they actually get more space or less space than it looks like. But you can't always do this, especially if you have like walls that are close right in fact in a movie like this where if we aren't in a small space we are often in a in an expansive outdoor space uh you may have the freedom of isolating isolating the subject and background because you can literally move the lamps discriminately but you still have the problem of the expansive background right Mm-hmm. So use the above strategies to downplay this. And one of the ways you can also do this is with lighting. Just don't light that stuff in the background. Right. But ultimately, wide spaces, you light space. And in narrow spaces, you light faces. Um, and this is an- another great example of this, uh, uh, this principle is in that same scene in the attic where they're all just kind of going through, like, what are we going to do? Should we make a run for it kind of stuff? Um all of that sh- all that stuff is also is now in a small space so mm-hmm. in most cases and if you are in a smaller space and don't have the freedom that an like an expansive outdoor section would allow you you'd use smaller more directional light sources for these close shots and this movie does a good job of doing that they stage actors near windows as a light source or they darken one side of their face and place a small lamp on the wall behind them to give a like a contrast between the two like dark face bright wall mm-hmm. there's lighting techniques as complex as like small directional lamps on gimbals that move and are like have very uh exacting laser beam kind of uh you know ways to light things and there's techniques as simple as just covering a lamp with some black wrap so it's basically just a spotlight Um, you can tell that this movie does a lot of that kind of stuff because especially in the indoor sequences where they're having to light these small spaces, they're using very directional light from very specific spots. And they like to show you where that light is coming from because most directors of photography don't want to invent lights. They usually want to say like, oh, there's a source and that's how this scene is lit because they want it to reflect reality. They don't want it to feel like a theatrical, like a play where it's just like, what's that light? Oh, I don't know. What's that light? I don't know where that's <laughs> right. coming from. You know, right. some directors of photography do that. Uh, I think I mentioned on another uh, podcast, uh, Vitaro Storaro mm-hmm. or Vitario Storaro. Very theatrical, yes. Very like orchestral. And so like he had a mix board that he would use and you would like bring up the lights over here. Kind of like what you do on a theater, like a, if you ran tech on a play in mm-hmm. high school or mm-hmm. whatnot. Um because your lighting board would now be like an instrument. Um, and that's how he used it. And he's on that side of the spectrum. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have someone like Roger Deakins, who's like, everything Everything is going to be natural light. There's nothing that's not natural light. Why? Because that's just that's just my bag, baby. Um, so <laughs> I'm the Deeks. 
And he throws you his sunglasses. And then he throws you his sunglasses yeah, just and as plays he says, guitar as he skateboards they, away. They sparkle in the sun as they come. Right. right. So I just wanted to point that out. That yeah. if you are, if you sometimes when you're watching a movie and you notice that like the space is small, take a look at the lighting and how the lighting is done. Most DPs these days actually still use big, soft light sources because that's very in vogue right now. In fact, like the the decade spanning 2015 to probably 2025 and beyond, who who knows how long it will last. Right now, we're in the thick of a very bright. Uh, soft source kind of lighting uh, concept, and I like, like it's it. Just ha- I like it's, this little era we're it's having. It's very, it's very pretty. Yeah. Um, it's pretty light. Yeah. Uh, but it also, it pretty light that bounces around and is diffused means it bounces everywhere. Right. Um, and it means that you get less contrast overall. Uh, this movie does not do that. That's right. And there's a reason for that, and I think it's to make him feel more claustrophobic. Or that's my argument. Let's talk about my last thing. Um, so, or no, actually, that's that's all I really have in terms of like the, like what he's doing. So basically, to sum up, this movie, which I said, is not very great overall. I mean, I think personally, it suffers from lack of charismatic character development and and like a unique villain. Um, oh, I'm but just dropping bombs as you go here. I don't uh, give a fuck okay. anymore, man. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it exhibits a film vernacular that is fairly complex. They did a great job, in my opinion. And they did the following things that I listed. If you just want the table of contents of what I said. Here I go. Number one. Number one. Well, no, honestly, because I think when you hear them like a a barrage, like you'll kind of see that there is a method to the madness more. Shoot close and tell a photo. If you have to shoot wide, use color contrast to your favor. Contrast envelops your subject with the environment. And uh, using affinity of color uh, renders them kind of inert. Mm. Obstruct your view when relevant to encase your subject. Use editing and insert shots to make abstract elements of your story not reveal geography. When you're indoors, use angles that pronounce lines. Make those lines intersect. Light smaller spaces with confined sources. Pinpoint your focus to subject and background. Simplify, simplify, simplify. So that's like if I had to tell someone that, hey, I'm making a claustrophobic movie, I would be like, these are some tactics you could employ. All this shit went into the making of a vampire movie, and you can see it. It's there for everyone to see in the frames. Pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I think that this was a well-crafted movie visually. Like, by and large, I didn't love the 2000s shutter speed action stuff, uh, yeah. and which is weird because he was doing a great job before that. Like, that stuff felt like a sort of a nod to the aesthetic of the time, and it was like, oh, I kind of feel like you were doing better stuff than that. Or it um, just it doesn't feel like it's indicative of the time. It's like, oh, so yeah, I forgot there's that time that we, everyone that we saw Gladiator. Shit. Yeah, right, right, right. And, right, right, right. <laughs> and so we use shutter speed, you know, like stuff like that. That's right, Gladiator. That's who started that. Yeah. It works in that movie, though. It doesn't bother me as much. Uh, because it's fucking... Because look who's directing it, motherfucker. Right, 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 right. right, right. <laughs> look, he's yeah, good everywhere. Right. He's fucking great at it. Apparently, like, uh, I mean, I, I know this is a little off topic, but like, apparently Ridley mm. Scott like doesn't storyboard that much, but he'll like he'll do storyboards on the day, 
to like communicate angles and the storyboards mm. are like fucking incredible. Like they're just like little hand drawings that he does and they're incredible. Mm. Like I've been watching so I, behind the scenes stuff on Black 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 Hawk Down, not recently, but I did that a while ago, and mm. they were all like, like they a bunch of people from different points of view kept mentioning that he was doing that. Like, yeah, so he'd like drop a quick sketch, and the sketch was like, holy shit, really? <laughs> you know what I mean? That so kind of cool. makes sense. Yeah. That kind of makes sense to me because a little birdie once told I don't know why to uh, one of the steady cam ops that we would use when we were yeah. at cracked yeah. one of them. Uh, worked on a Ridley Scott film. Oh, uh, that's cool. Or, yeah, at the time, and was like, you know what? He was like, my biggest takeaway from that set because I, he's like, I've seen big sets. Uh, I've like, seen. I've been on, I was on. I was on like Hard Eight, like uh, or not Hard Eight. Sorry, what's the? Yeah, wait, Hard Eight. That's what's the Tarantino? That's the Tarantino Western eight, Hard Eight. Uh, eight uh, eight Flight. Eight, eight Flight. Eight Flight. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Um. He was like, I worked on a lot of you know big sets and stuff, but the Ridley Scott one, the camera package was enormous. Mm. I think it's. I think he does. He's allowed to do what you said because he's specifically like, we have all the tools. So I can think of so, whatever I want, right? So he spends a lot of his money on the the toolkit, uh, and that's you know if you have money, great. I mean, that's interesting, particularly because he comes from a production design background. So, yeah. right. So you'd think that like uh, you think that he would be more narrow in his focus because for production design, that's a little bit of a nightmare. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like you don't want camera. Bring all the pieces. Yeah, you don't want camera to be able to do anything because for if you're a production designer, you've designed the space to be seen from certain angles and super not from others. I think, you yeah, know, but it's more of a testament of for Ridley Scott. He knows what he can. Yeah, he knows do. what he can do. Right. Of course he knows. Yeah. But yeah, it's it seems like he wants all the tools there because at any random time, because you're like saying he's like firing from the hip a little bit. Yeah. He's like, oh, shit, there's a little bug on the you see this wheat over here. <laughs> I'm going to get a shot of this wheat, man. Let's get this wheat. Shutter speed. Let like me draw it for you. And it's like a, like you fucking hear the heavens open up and sing while he draws it. <laughs> Yeah, after you've Blade yeah. Runnered, I feel like at that point you could do whatever you want, man. Like once you once you've been a Blade Boy, mm-hmm. you can just do it forever. <laughs> Got all these blades, I, <laughs> I don't know these blades. I get to shoot these blades. <laughs> gotta shoot these blades, and then I gotta run away. All right, all right. This is not a bit. I just think it's, <laughs> it's really funny to do that voice for Ridley Scott, famous British director. Yeah. All right, so. That's it. <laughs> that's all I got. I guess that's all we got then. Uh, yeah. It's been a it's been a true pleasure and a, and an honor. Uh, thank you for your <laughs> wonderful theory. And uh, Thanks, those man. of you who enjoyed this podcast, uh, hey man, thanks so much for being patrons and uh, for checking out Small Beans. Uh, I bet uh, you, you might find other podcasts on this network that you could enjoy, like our Escape from the Multi Curse uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. In which we talk about the relevance of the multicurse in today's pop culture and media. Uh, there's all kinds of video projects and uh, various podcasting couplets that you can explore, and uh, maybe you might even want to get involved in the indie movie scene because our boys Abe and Mike are making a little film called Papa Bear Aww, that uh, you can you. check out and read the script and you know toss them a buck or two, and one day get nodded at by a famous director who will throw you his sunglasses. <laughs> That's you. You have to buy a lot of sunglasses, Abe. 
This is me skateboarding away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans if you enjoyed this content module please like rate subscribe or tell a friend about us we love you <laughs>